This is Utkarsh, the founder of Earth Capital. Today, I'm really excited to host Arsh and Steve, the authors of a new book called uh, A New Idea of India, where uh, these investors, business people, and also writers have asked us to consider a new idea of India. This is an idea India where they believe uh, it's more inclusive and it brings to bear the civilizational history. Many people disagree with them, many people agree with them, but uh, that's why I invited both of them who are my friends and I know them from different walks of life. But today let's engage with this new idea of India. So welcome Harsh, Rajiv, it's so good to have you on Network Capital TV. Thank you, Thank Utkarsh. You. You know, this book uh, started off as a collection of articles that both of you have written for Mint, Wall Street and other uh, reputed places, but it became something else, right? So mm -hmm. tell us about uh, the, uh, the journey of writing this book and how you had to sort of change the order, change the structure uh, as it went along. Because as I understand, it became a lot more detailed and a lot more revised than you would have thought initially, right? No, most definitely. Uh, so, uh, you know, our initial sort of thought around this back almost, I think, five years ago now, uh, you know, when we were just kicking around this idea was that uh, having written over a hundred columns uh, each and uh, probably four or five dozen jointly, hmm. uh, we thought, let's bring together what we've uh, put, out, put out there in the public discourse, uh, domain and uh, make it accessible, readable uh, as a kind of compilation or anthology. But as we were doing that, we realized that some of the material had obviously become a little dated. It was maybe a few years old. Those debates themselves had changed form. Uh, so then, you know, we went about rewriting and editing and uh, researching sort of new angles, went down new rabbit holes. Uh, and uh, it became a, a much more expansive project, actually, in that sense. Right. And uh, this process of uh, adding new material, Harsh, um, do you want to add something to Rajiv's uh, opening? Yes, absolutely. First of all, once again, thank you so much, Utkarsh, for having us. Uh, to the viewers, I'm just letting you know, Utkarsh and I went to the same B school. And, um, you know, Rajiv, in turn, I actually met when I came back from my college, um, from my undergraduate. I met him in 2009. Um, we started, we had similar views on a range of issues, and we started. Uh, organizing events, uh, small events, writing together. So as Rajiv said, we wrote about 50 odd columns together and many more columns separately. We tried to begin together. And around a uh, few years ago, uh, what happened was with the change in government uh, in India in 2014, and that government, that of Mr. Narendra Modi being re-elected in 2019, like the debate on so many issues kind of moved much faster than we had anticipated. And when we were finishing the book in 2020, uh, you know, the corona pandemic brought us back to the same city, namely Kolkata. It was all at, you know, the first year of the second government, Narendra Modi was so action oriented across a range of spheres that, you know, it seems like he was actually doing stuff faster than we were writing. Uh, <laughs> so it was it was one of those things that we were we were constantly re-editing. And then we finally had to said we have to stop here 
because the economic policy issues, the civilizational issues, um, the pace was so intense that we had to draw a line. And we just managed to get a bit of, you know, maybe a few paragraphs, a couple of pages on the coronavirus pandemic itself, which yeah. in itself is an earth sh you know, shattering kind of event, which will have probably a shadow on the rest of our lives, both good and bad. Uh, so, so I think, you know, we had to finally call it a day and say, you know, there are more books to be written. This seems like a nice attempt, nice first jab. Uh, so let's, uh, let's kind of wrap it up here, which is what we did a few months ago. So, um, uh, Harsh and I, uh, when yeah, Rajiv and I know each other from a variety of places, one of which is the Observer Research Foundation. Um, also World Economic Forum. World Economic Forum and a variety of intersections. I'm always fascinated by how dots come together. And then I see uh, Harsh and Rajiv, who I knew independently partnering on this initiative. It's uh, always a joy to see, you know, great work happen from different walks of life. But what my listeners won't know is that perhaps you're both active investors, one in public markets and one in venture capital and other kinds of industries. So when people with you know with very intense day jobs embark upon a journey of such writing tell me about the schedules guys how did you figure this out because this is not easy research i mean i was going through it this is a lot of work tell us about how young professionals can manage you know say dual careers in a way um okay i'll go yeah, first i'll yeah. say um, that you're absolutely right with Karsh. Uh, you know we almost have 100 pages of references so we, we, I don't be, it would not be wrong to say that we definitely put a lot of kind of toil and sweat in this this one, and I think uh, the way I would see it is, uh, you know, I'm you're right. I do public market investing. Rajiv does both public and private, especially venture. Um, and both of us, as you began by saying, are India enthusiasts. So actually, part of the job of building an India hypothesis in your head, in my head, in Rajiv's head is actually reading very widely and not just related narrowly to finance but broadly to economics, political economy, sociology at times, and the larger global context. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, while they are seemingly separate areas, they're not completely orthogonal. And you know, so uh, one thing which I like to quote often is some people call investing to be the last liberal art. So you know, investing in writing or writing broadly, like nonfiction type of writing, are the two areas where you can read widely and not feel that you're wasting your time. So in a, in a way, while they seem very disconnected and they do seem like dual career, one career, one vocation, um, the underlying kind of root of both of them is basically reading widely, having a particular view about India especially. Um, so in that sense, while it was a lot of work, they were not completely disconnected from each other. Rajiv? No, yeah, and uh, I think, I think one of the key things in investing is to have a strong thesis has to is to have a strong viewpoint right about the future and yeah. then you are essentially putting capital behind that viewpoint so i think uh, as you at a macro level start thinking about india and all the changes that are happening here uh, and have been happening for the last uh, two or three decades then you kind of form an opinion and uh, you know if you put that into a certain written form uh, you start discussing that in terms of the, particularly the social and economic changes that are coming. Uh, then it it kind of overlaps uh, pretty neatly, like I've described, with sort of uh, you know an investing type of uh, uh, job. And I'll also add uh, on the on the mechanics of it. You know, people often ask uh, how do, how do two people collaborate on a book, uh, especially if you're not in the same city and so on. Would uh, you? Did you know? Not now. 
sorry, what? Both of you are not in the same city now. No, so at, at the moment I'm in Mumbai. Harsh is in Kolkata, and uh, even even I, actually all over the last decade, all throughout the last decade, all through the last decade, uh, Harsh and I, I think have been mostly in different cities. I see. Uh, very infrequently, actually, we've been in the same yeah. uh, city that way. So so uh, I would just uh, put that down to using sort of you know productivity software, uh, collaboration software, and so on. I mean. You know, you you write something, you email someone the draft, they get back to you over over a period of time, mm. uh, and and there are no shortcuts. Uh, uh, as you pointed out, uh, there's a lot of research in the book, so that entail a lot of sleepless nights, a uh, lot of like burning the midnight oil. Over and above your very busy jobs, to what yes. point? Yeah. So 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 especially towards the end, actually, uh, it it required like an intense sort of last mile sort of push. Hmm. Uh, from both of us, and in in some ways, actually, because the pandemic kind of forced us to stay in Calcutta, I think I think in some ways we were able to actually do it uh, a little faster. Hmm. So the the final draft got completed between like April and uh, July. So those two three months of the lockdown in 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 a weird way actually may have helped us wrap up the book. Right. Uh, one point that uh, Rajiv had like you to build on. Uh, Harsh said that it's also part of the larger investing thesis that he is. So work, the book is not really, you know, a completely different space. Um, it does connect in some way to to both your work. So while you were writing this book, did you uh, did you follow a certain kind of routine or a regimen? And I'd love for both of you to explain because you know I really want our listeners to understand the mechanics of dual careers, even if they are not sort of separated. How might you optimize, uh, you know, spending time with friends and family, then working on you know your quote unquote day job, and then writing extensively? Uh, so I I think it really varies from person to person. However, they choose to do it and whatever works for them. I I'll, I'll just kind of uh, give you a glimpse of how how I do things. So, so let's say if I'm if I'm uh, reading, uh, you know, the news blogs, etc., that I do on a, a regular basis, a daily basis, and you know, a germ of an idea comes into my mind, I sort of uh, note it somewhere. Usually, you know, in in, in pages or in Evernote or somewhere, hmm. I kind of have a running list of potential column ideas, potential article ideas, and so on. So I keep hmm. logging them like that. And then, and then, if I find related material, I put it in the same note. Hmm. Uh, so, so uh, I never sit down and write a column from start to finish. So, when I write a particular column, uh, you know that column has probably been in the works for months, if not sometimes years, actually. I see. Uh, because it just builds up, it builds up, and then I feel like I have enough material, and then I sort of hmm. write the thousand words. So, so, but uh, I think it really varies from person to person. I'm sure Harsh has a very different process. Uh, it really is a very personal thing, I guess. Yes. No, I, I fully agree with Rajiv. I am uh, not as methodical as Rajiv is. So, I mean, I have to write I'm when I'm either really inspired or really angry or something like that. <laughs> that helps a lot uh, to get it out. I mean, but one thing that I agree and which is common with Rajiv is that, you know, any column or any good piece of writing um, is often building with, within you at least for months. You're thinking about the thesis. You're thinking of the dots. You know whether you put it in Evernote or you put it in your brain. You're you're definitely thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of just comes out one day because you, if you don't, uh, at least in my case, then 
Yeah, that day is going to be terrible. You have to write at that moment. It's and it's compelling. Yeah, exactly. You're compelled to put it out. And in my case, so actually, in that sense, our, uh, you know, while it was occasionally, you know, Rajiv's methodical style and mine slightly more kind of intuitive, passion-driven style, okay, very occasionally clashed, but it was also very good kind of complement to each other in the sense that, you know. Um, so I would bring certain notes and, you know, Rajiv would kind of organize it in a certain way. I would say this and then I would help him. And so it, it, the way of writing was very complementary to each other in that sense. Um, and as you know, it's, but nonetheless, we were, we did need like about a couple of months. Uh, I would visit Rajiv's place, Rajiv would visit my place. We both live relatively nearby in Kolkata, which is where we were both born and brought up, even though both of us have been in various countries, if not cities. Uh, last 10 years so that that allowed us to kind of sit together on a giant screen and you know like one of us would pace around one of us would write it out it's a unique experience because as you you also written a book right now Karsh, but that's just you right so um it's 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 different writing a book by yourself versus with somebody else in fact i've written another book earlier with two co-authors so that's three people a book on financial derivatives that's more of a textbook right uh, published by cambridge university press and i that was that that also had its own unique kind of dynamic. So I think co-authoring is always a bit of an interesting challenge, but it also brings out the best. Like it's like you're sitting together, and sometimes two one plus one is as they say eleven, not two, right? It just the ideas bounce back very fruitfully. Mm. So there are pros and cons of both, but I think Rajiv and I gelled very well together um, in finishing this project. So both uh, Rajiv and Harsh uh, are passionate about mental models, and that comes up a lot in books because uh, they encourage us to, you know, think from basic principles, and that comes out in a wide, uh, wide range of thoughts. Um, talk to us about uh, some of the mental models that you've used to deconstruct. I mean, uh, there are way too many, so I don't expect all of them, but perhaps the ones that really jumped out, perhaps uh, the Talib ones that you've talked about. Um, would love for you to add color to it. Why mental models uh, in analyzing a country, or why not? Uh, so I think uh, I mean mental models as just for the you know audiences uh, benefit is something. For example, the phrase Charlie Munger uses, which is simply a way of saying that there are different frameworks in different areas of life. For example, from economics, from political economy, from sociology, finance. And you basically quote different writers and philosophers and their ways of looking at the world. And in many ways, new knowledge or new books are combining pre-existing mental models and applying that to a particular set of data or context. You know, you're always standing on the shoulders of giants. You're never kind of really going from absolutely ground up. Uh, so you're right, we quote Talib a lot. We, we, we use his, I mean, his more well-known ones about skin in the game, we use towards the second half of the book in which we're talking about India's governance and incentives. But we use, also use his, many of his insights, which are less well-known in the first half, in which he says there are cultures and there are cultures, there are religions and there are religions. And he says there are very different ways of understanding them. And you cannot have a cookie-cutter way of understanding different, in a way which goes to a point of India being a unique civilization. Um, we also quote, amongst Western philosophers, Karl Popper a lot. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we quote him from his Open Society in the Enemies in, in terms of you know, the paradox of tolerance and intolerance. We quote a lot of Western economists like Gary Becker. He writes about economics of discrimination. We also quote a lot of Indian uh, philosophers and dharmic philosophers, uh, whereby we use dharmic frameworks and mental models about you know, how India historically has dealt with pluralism 
and multiplicity while being very harmonious, respectful, and how that is potentially a model for India today, but also the world at large. Uh, so, so there is there is definitely a unique sense coming from that side, and I think uh, other other than these kind of meta models, uh, we we also quote in the beginning from from scientists and physicists, um, including people like Oppenheimer and other people who find Indian civilizational ideas very unique. Um, we actually begin the book by saying that the Rig Veda, the very kind of mother load of all Indic Vedic dharmic ideas. Uh, is extremely uh, kind of amenable to skepticism. But even while it prescribes a lot of things, it says, we are not sure if this is fully true. We just believe this. You know, maybe even the gods don't know who created the universe and so on and so forth. The tone is very much, uh, again, amenable to what we would call falsifiability in science, to quote Karl Popper. So there are there are these different views that we bring in together, uh, very unique to the way Rajiv and I think, uh, both across Indian and Western thinkers. So just uh, uh, what the Harsh said was, if something is not falsifiable, it's not scientific. And yeah. uh, scientific, yeah, like uh, one should be more skeptical of it. Um, but I noticed that this entire analysis, uh, you both are very comfortable with, uh, say, the dharmic identity um, or, say, the Indic identity. Um, I think that requires a bit more explanation. Explain it to it in really simple terms because many of our subscribers are also not from here. So perhaps you want to explain that in a little bit uh, um, of detail. While also explaining uh, that you're not, say, against you know, any, any, anything, if that's the case, and if you are against, then you should also let it be known. Because while um, Harsh and Rajiv, I know them as delightful... Uh, you know, dinner companions. Occasionally in the book, they also take a strident tone. So I would love for them to explain that, especially the, this dharmic philosophy. What do you really mean by that? So I would say, uh, you know, if you if you uh, pick up on this one idea uh, from uh, dharmic philosophy, it says tat tvam asi, which basically from the Sanskrit is, translates to "you are that." Uh, and it, it says that uh, each individual should treat others in the way they want that individual to treat them. Hmm. Uh, so, so uh, and I think, you know, many of uh, dharmic ideas today are popular in, in, you know, what in the West is called multiculturalism, in a sense. So, as we argue in the book, dharma is kind of the original multiculture. Uh, where, where the, in a way, yeah. So, so uh, as the original multiculture, where there is mutual respect, hmm. there is kind of deep empathy, and that kind of an approach we make the case in the book has had a place in Indian civilizational ethos for multiple millennia. Hmm. Got it. So, if I could put it very simply, I would, I would uh, put it that, that that way. And Harsh, if you want to add something, yes, absolutely. I think absolutely. Tattwa Masi or Aham Brahmasmi. The idea is that, you know, uh, you are me, I am you, we are all kind of one. I mean, there are, there are different, that's more Advait, there are also Dwait and other philosophical strands in ancient and medieval Indian thought. But broadly, the idea within Dharma is, and Dharma is one of those kind of non-translatable words. Uh, so, you know, it does, uh, there is a misconception that it translates into religion. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, the translation of Dharma is not religion. The translation of Dharma would be 
something that defines his entire civilization. So religion is one aspect of it. Ethics is one aspect of it. Law is one aspect. Order is one aspect. And the root word dharma comes from the word ta, which literally means the kind of universal order. So dharma is basically what we see is what constitutes the core of Indian civilization. And what we mean by that is, for example, even Shashi Tharoor, who also Utkarsh knows very well, uh, if you read his book, like, who is a Hindu? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm quoting him because I'm saying generally he is somebody who would be seen as, uh, by the way, he gave a very good blurb to our, uh, for uh, our book. I read his, and he was actually on uh, Network Capital TV three months back. So he had very lovely things to say about the yeah, book. Exactly. So he said that while I agree with certain premises and conclusions, while I disagree with certain premises and conclusions, I find the book extremely interesting and uh, we agree on XYZ. So the reason why I quote Shashi is just to say that it's a consensus across so-called right and so-called left. And we can discuss separately that even the right and left terminology does not make sense in India. But on the so-called right and so-called left, there is consensus. But there is something unique about dharmic ideas, one of which is there is no central um, core belief that you must believe. And if you do not believe, you will be sent to hell for eternity. Or if you must follow this path or this prophet or this one holy book, and that multiplicity at this at this at the core of it that if you do not do this then also it's fine uh, so long as you respect somebody who does the other thing like you know the the only the only core requirement in that sense is you have to respect other people's beliefs you do not have to believe what they're believing but so long as you do not disrespect them for their beliefs you are part of this kind of dharmic superstructure you know and some of my friends uh, and guides and mentors like sanjeev sanyal who rajiv also knows very well who is the principal economic advisor and other people have said, for example, Dharma is like an open source operating system, right? It's, it's like it's like Android to some extent where you can have different apps, like you can have like a Shiv app, you can have a Buddha app, you can have you know, Jain app. Jainism is not necessarily even theistic in, a, in an English sense. It's, it's, it might be defined as atheist or agnostic. It is more about ethics and values, for example, Jainism. So you can have different apps on this OS so long as none of the apps are basically threatening the other apps. And Dharma is kind of the superstructure, the OS itself. Dharma is not an app by itself. So, and even Bruno Masais, uh, uh, a former Portuguese minister, uh, somebody who works in a thing, I'm forgetting which think tank he works in right now, a very well-known writer in strategic circles. He actually compared Dharma to Western liberalism in the sense that Dharma is a structure within which everything exists. Right. So you, for example, you can be a Republican or a Democrat, but you're you, you're when you say liberals in America, you generally mean left liberal or Democrats. But outside of America, even the Republicans are seen as small and liberal. The mm -hmm. Democrats can be capital liberal. In fact, many of the Australian right wingers are liberal nationalists and so on and so forth. So Dharma is the kind of operating system that says what we need is everybody to respect the other person. And why is that multiculturalism, as Raji mentioned? as we wrote, is the original multiculturalism. So if you look at some, like a Hindu god like Ganesh, so like Ganesh is a different kind of family story in different parts of India. Hmm. Like, you know, you might have a brother by a certain name in South India, might have a different story in North India. And what the leaders of our civilization did in many centuries and millennia past by is they sometimes subconsciously, but often deliberately linked all the local gods, the tribal gods, to the more prominent gods through this concept of avatars and incarnations so that everybody had a local version which they kind of felt grounded and rooted to but they were part of this kind of civilization uh which you know dina egg the famous author calls 
the India, the what's the, what's the name of the book, Raji? Dynamics book. Uh, um, uh, getting the India secret geography. India secret geography. So Dynamics thesis is that you know somebody from South India goes to Badrinath in North India. Somebody from East goes to Dwarka in Gujarat, and you know so the, these kind of holy, which which might be of different, might be Sikh, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever, but these pilgrimages, including Sufi shrines, you know, in fact, many Hindus even go to Ajmer Sharif. You know, there are people who disagree with that and all that, but there are many Hindus who have gone to Ajmer Sharif, which is actually a Muslim shrine. So there is this concept of a sacred geography um, within India, uh, which basically means that, so we, you can follow any particular God in, in Sanskrit, it's called Ishtadev, which is your personal God. Then there is something called a Kuldev, which is your family traditional God. And thing is, you can change your Ishdev. And those Ishdev and family gods are actually linked to kind of gods from other parts of India. And I think it was done deliberately over these centuries. So what happens is you call Murugan, you worship Murugan in South India, you worship Kartiki or Ganesh in North India, whatever it is. And that multiculturalism, that multiplicity kind of just harmonious, harmoniously pre-existed together. So long as nobody says that what you believe is wrong, this whole thing kind of continues. And therefore, actually, Western multiculturalism in a small m sense, the, without the government welfare and all that, is actually a very deeply dharmic and Indic idea. Because, you know, Europe was earlier known as Christendom till about 100 years ago. And uh, till 150 years ago, even many Jews did not have any rights. I mean, even forget Nazi Germany, even the rest of Western liberal Europe and North America, they slowly got enfranchised and got right to vote and so on and so forth. In Switzerland, women got the right to vote as late as 1971. So there is there is a sense that dharma is basically what allows us to be together. Um, because if you think about it, um, and this is a bit more controversial, that Pakistan and India are two separate nations, right? Even though Punjab is in both places. Bangladesh and India are two separate nations, and happily so, even though Bengal are in both places. Hmm. So there is a sense of, um, there is a certain sense of ideas, which might be across demographics what keeps India coherent as India. And, you know, so you have to, if, without going in a narrow sectarian way, you must understand what keeps India together because people of Indian Punjab and Jammu are very happy being with Tamils of India and vice versa. Even though, you know, the Punjabis of India don't want to be with the Punjabis of Pakistan and vice versa. So, you know, it's, it's a question that we need to ask, why is that the case? Why are the Punjabis of India and Pakistan not happy with each other? They're happy meeting each other in foreign lands. As you know, I know, and many of our, uh, you know, fellow students, colleagues, alumni know. But why is it that they don't want to be part of the same country? And we actually write in the book, culture and civilization, even though they're related words, they're not exactly the same thing. Like culture might be about dance, food, and music, but civilization is deeper, what we call soul deep instead of skin deep. And what happens in very kind of cosmopolitan circles is we want to wish it away, but that reality has a way of not being wished away. And if you want to understand the world at large, whether Donald Trump wins or loses, it looks like he's going to lose. Nonetheless, there a lot of commentators were saying, well, there is a so-called right-wing kind of group emerging across the world, right? From, from Brexit to Trump to Bolsonaro to Erdogan to Modi and so on and so forth. And there are different reasons and you cannot compare all these people. It's definitely not one-to-one, -one. but we need, without agreeing with Samuel Huntington's clash of civilization, at least we need to respect and acknowledge that there are in that particular sense, different civilizations. So I think the book kind of acknowledges that and says India is not just a post-1947 kind of invention 
uh, in terms of modern republic. That is only the latest avatar, to use the dharmic term. It's only the latest incarnation. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, I don't know if that kind of cleared up what dharma means, the way we are coming at it, but to some extent, I hope it does. It definitely does. Is, uh, do you want to add something to that, Raji? No, I think I think that's a uh, you know I think both of us have sort of explained it, and oh. together I think it kind of makes sense. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot more in the book about it. Actually, you know, there's such a there's such a rich topic that you could spend hours discussing this, and it would take up all the time. You combined it, uh, you know, in your idea of it. Just a quick follow up. Uh, do you think in this? Uh, a dharmic superstructure that uh, both of you talk about in the book. Uh, does it include all Indians? Like, are all Indians of all ethnicities and backgrounds, uh, are they all part of this superstructure? And do you think um, they're aware of it or comfortable of this identity? Or are you introducing a relatively new concept that people should consider? I think I think every Indian is uh, part of any every Indian citizen is part of this and uh, identity no no matter what for the simple reason that our constitution would understand and uh, promote mutual respect. So mm. remember when we talk about equality, liberty, which is the big kind of Western debate, mm. uh, people forget about the third ity in France, which is fraternity. Yeah, right. So, I mean, every like all these Western political debates about equality and liberty, but people forget fraternity. Fraternity is basically saying that you have to respect each other. Like you, you, you cannot just be, you cannot have a passport because you're born in one part of territorial uh, terra firma on this planet called Earth. Uh, nations are what we call organic entities. People kind of know each other, like each other. They have at least to some extent, some common understanding of history, some common understanding of where they're going in the future. It's an organic spiritual principle. We quote Ernest Renan, a European philosopher on that. Uh, so I, I I absolutely think that all Indians are part of it, and if any Indian is not, he or she chooses it. I don't think any major religion, uh, any there are interpretations of all major religions that would allow every Indian to be part of um, the way Rajiv and I see India. But if somebody chooses a very literalist understanding of certain ideas, then I think that is his or her choice. But I don't think I think by default everybody is absolutely a part of this superstructure. Uh, the civilization and, and the constitution and kind of overlaps. And and I would just uh, uh, quote from you know uh, what Ernest Renan, the French philosopher, had said on he had he had uh, given this very evocative lecture on what uh, titled "What is a Nation?" So and he had said and I quote: "A nation is a soul, a spiritual principle, two things which properly speaking are really one and the same. Constitute this soul, this spiritual principle." One is the past, the other is the present. One is the possession in common of a rich legacy of memories. The other is present consent, the desire to live together, the desire to continue to invest in the heritage that we have jointly received. So, so I think, uh, you know, all citizens in India would, or rather I would say almost all, maybe there are some groups who don't subscribe to it, some small I would add by saying this, for example, people, for example, differentiate, hey, look, Americans, America's civic nationalism versus kind of the ancient old world, Europe and Asia is kind of territorial or ethnic, ethno-nationalism. But I think that's a false divide. In, a, in even in America, I mean, there are differences, but even in America, everybody kind of uh, gets emotional around the flag and the idea of liberty, right? Uh, so you, you can have different national origins, different skin colors. 
but the you know american politicians routinely use the word un-american they say this is un-american right they say that so to that extent to say this is un-indian is just an analogy you know so there could be some un-indians but for example I, it's a dormant law it's not often used but if you are a communist party member in any part of the world and you're applying for a u.s visa you're supposed to actually acknowledge that and by certain laws or precedents you may not get the visa whether it's always enforced in practice or not and you were just a college communist enthusiast that's a separate issue um but then one can say well what is the american quote unquote religion or civic religion or national religion <clears throat> which, which kind of incites them or encourages them to you know make communists untouchable and if you think in those so the thing is we have to get outside the box of what constitutes a national identity and a civic religion because these often we get confused by semantics and if you look at america in there in that sense there is a common religion of americanism which kind of centers on this idea of liberty even though the right and left might have different interpretations of the word and therefore they say you know a communist is an american you don't have to be a mccarthyite to say that uh is that is the american equivalent of adharma right you know and 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 a communist can be from any background uh so i think you know you you have we quote karl popper on this you have to reserve the right to not tolerate the intolerant but that should not be the default the default should be try to convince by persuasion by rhetoric by articulation by logical reasoning and argument and you have to give everybody a long rope but finally any nation state especially one that is on the fertile bed of a civilization has to reserve the right uh to not tolerate the intolerant beyond a point uh so i th- i think it's a very nuanced structure where you cannot have a narrow interpretation you basically flipped the common uh intolerant analogy which uh, i will let the readers or listeners figure it out but it is definitely one valid interpretation look we began the show by saying this is one interpretation by two authors sure um um we also um just want to do a quick deep dive into the fact that uh, if you were to look all factors considered at where india stands today and what india has arrived do you think that uh, the indian definition of secularism which is slightly different from the technical definition of secularism has played a constructive role or a less constructive role and for our for our listeners uh, uh, the way secularism is traditionally defined as the separation of uh, religion and state and in india it is equality of all religion in the eye of the state so what do uh, harshan rajiv think about that they have touched about it in a very interesting way but uh, i'd like for them to give you or leave you no, with enough thought no so uh, let me have a go at that first so uh, chapter 3 of the book actually delves into this in detail and uh, this is obviously one of the most contentious debates in india yeah uh, you know uh, what is secular and uh, frequently the opposite of secularism in india is portrayed as communalism and our case is that the op- opposite of secularism is actually theocracy so uh, a state can be secular uh, to ask for a society to become secular uh, is frankly patently absurd uh because uh, society is composed of individuals individuals will have their own uh, sort of beliefs ideas views about the world maybe about the afterlife maybe about the before life whatever uh and uh, it's really not possible to secularize society in a sense unless you want to go down the road of mao and stalin uh so so uh i do think 
that uh, one of the big issues, the big sort of social uh, uh, dividers in India has been the abuse of this word called secularism, which is why the chapter that we've written on this is called Saving Secularism from the Secularists. Uh, and in fact, we call for a restoration of uh, secularism properly practiced, properly understood. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Utkarsh, you've read the book. So we've, we've made a detailed case of how different governments, even different courts in India, the judiciary, uh, they have actually made a mockery of this word and uh, to, the to the larger detriment of India, actually, where, uh, you know, intuitively a lot of people question it. They may not necessarily vocalize it perfectly, but, uh, you know, they, they see it as kind of a political scam, to be very honest. And uh, it has become that way because of certain malpractices of the last several decades. Yes, exactly. So I put it very kind of, uh, um, you know, in a very short way is that uh, India does not practice the secularism of A, what Utkarsh rightly mentioned was the separation of state and religion, and B, seeing citizens as individual citizens in front of the state. So in fact, they try to say Sarva Dharma Sambha, which is what Utkarsh kind of translated into English as seeing all religions equally or in some egalitarian manner with the kind of postmodern idea of their core, giving some religions a leg up because either they are minorities or endangered or whatever the interpretation. Uh, even the equal is not always equal. If at all, it can be equal in once you once the state enters the domain of religion, which to some extent by definition is irrational, right? There can be no there can be no definition. There can be no saying this was an equal treatment because you know two religions are so different. How do you even define that you were treat, you treated them equally unless you completely withdraw uh, from that process? So in India, we've not had secularism either of the American format or the French format. So just for the you know, American format is but very liberal. Sense, what, actually, to be very clear, what happens in India is religion-based religion discrimination in the name of secularism. So basically, there are laws in India, even today, in 2020, which, for example, only allow certain people to marry four times. And other people, including of both genders, cannot marry more than one time. And, and my point is, it is stupid for anybody to marry more than once but you know, why should the law allow anybody to marry four times like it should it should be no, the same multiple, multiple partners is what harsh is referring to yeah yeah i mean my point is that by law the law should treat all citizens equally isn't that the basic understanding of liberal secularism and, and in it, india you talk about some cases where uh, you know it has been applied differently but you know it, i think people should definitely read the book on that but uh, if you could just conclude this particular uh, topic by explaining what might Indian future uh, look like. I don't think what you're saying is that every Indian should become religion X, but what you are no. saying is that uh, no. you know, it's a way to go about it. So what might, what's the vision for the future? Suppose for example, the vision is very simple for, uh, you know, if you could have not exactly that, but you could have a system of laws the way, for example, the US has or an Australia has whereby everybody in front of the state is just an individual citizen. Your Utkarsh's religious identity, Rajiv's or Harsh's or anybody else's does not matter. The same marriage laws, divorce laws, inheritance laws, adoption laws, education regulations for schools based on people of one religion to see the other, uh, regulating the places of worship, temples or mosques or churches, they should be all exactly the same in the law. There should be no discrimination against anybody by law. 
So the American example is there. The Australian Canadian example is there. Uh, I'm not saying the British because even though the British in practice is fine, but they have a they have a state religion. Technically, the Anglican religion. The French example is there, but it's slightly liberal. In fact, they try to like ban many religious kind of symbols in government-funded schools and bureaucratic offices. But there are so many models, and we can we can choose our own unique model. It need not copy anybody blindly. But the, to answer your original question very briefly, this has actually caused more harm. And I think Steve Wilkinson, if I'm getting the name right, yeah, uh, I'm just going to mention the, the political yeah. scientist, the political scientist. He's actually shown measurably. So in one of his papers, uh, Stephen Wilkinson, uh, he he's kind of shown how the rise of what's called consociationalism uh, leads to ethnic violence. Can you please explain that term? It's there in the book, but many listeners might not have heard understood so, that. So, so crudely speaking, it's a it's kind of a political science uh, jargon for power sharing uh, or power distribution between groups. So uh, in a, in a sense. If you look at India through that lens, in India there there are religious groups who are sort of sharing power based on group identity, uh, and often that is reinforced by different kinds of laws, and that creates what what's called a consociationalist. Uh, that's a very awkward and difficult to pronounce word. Consociationalist. Let me say that a second time. Mm. Uh, 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 system, and uh, Wilkinson has actually shown that uh, over. Uh, several decades in india that has led to rising violence okay so uh, you're saying that uh, secularism needs to be you know redefined uh, but one question so, so the core the core actually utkarsh to conclude i would say is that uh, indians are individuals they are not members of a group and the indian state should not say you know show me your religion and i show you the law that's what's happening right now the indian state says you know okay this guy is a hindu this woman is a christian this woman is a muslim this man is a muslim whatever based on that and in fact you know there are gender variations even within religion so laws should be gender neutral obviously with appropriate exemptions and even uh, religion neutral yeah so um i was about to come to that uh, before diving into the economic aspects of the book that you both argue for uh, you know individual right a lot and uh, you know there is an identity or a willingness or a choice of one person which is really important uh, as you explain and then there is also a group identity an identity or an affiliation to multiple things so how does the modern indian um, who studied at columbia or insead reconcile with uh, with this identity of being a part of a say a global maybe elite plus the indian you know trying to figure things out plus you know all the you know say religion x y how does all of this fit into your yeah, so, so so that is actually exactly the point that we are making is that today uh, individuals see themselves in multiple ways right so you know i've i've spent a lot of time in new york studying there working there so somewhere i am a new yorker i like to see myself as a new yorker somewhere i feel at home when i'm traveling there uh, i i'm born in calcutta i'm a calcutian i'm an indian i'm also a hindu uh you know i went to college at northwestern so i'm a northwesterner in that sense so i have multiple identities and uh, it's it, the the kind of nuances that individuals and society can always see each other as however they wish but in the eyes of the state in the eyes of the government you know i am just an indian and that's how it should be 
so the government should not say that uh, you know this person is a hindu and that's the hindu law applies to him and this person is a muslim and there is a different law for that or whatever there should be a same sort of standard law which yeah. we all agree is the minimum basic law for all citizens of india very quick follow up so hypothetically i mean the three of us are not marginalized per se but hypothetically if somebody is historically how might you propose uh, that uh, you know be looked at in the eyes of the law should there be something called a positive discrimination yeah, so yeah, we actually we did yeah, talk about that yeah we talked about that in the book we say for example india does have uh, caste quotas uh, there is something called a scheduled caste group which has since the, since the beginning of the republic has had quotas or reservation or affirmative action or positive discrimination we also even have it for scheduled tribes and it was later added for other backward classes it's not technically caste but the kind of more or less lap even though it includes obcs and sts include member of all religions including muslims and christians sc is the only category which has members of only dharmic religions or indic religions like hinduism buddhism sikhism jainism and so on and so forth so basically uh, affirmative action in india covers all religions include sc st obc and the short answer to yes is yes we should have some affirmative action but with the caveat of it should be time bound there should be a sunset clause so what i mean by that what rajiv and i have written in the book is couple of aspects first of all we failed to focus on we got the wrong economic policies of the first 3 4 decades and we'll come to that very quickly we failed to invest in primary education and there were groups that are historically marginalized so giving them a leg up on a time bound manner is okay and secondly so long as you're doing it in a caste or class category uh, something which you can not at least caste you cannot kind of convert out right caste is by definition where you were born the parents you were born to but if you do it solely in the name exclusively in the name of religion for example which you can in any liberal democracy like india convert to or away from a certain religion then not only are you doing something opposite of secularism you're also con- you're also incentivizing conversions and therefore my our way of understanding is we should have some caste quotas of affirmative action provided there is an understanding there is a sunset clause there is a national consensus created that say by 2030 uh, we'll remove this the obc aspect or we'll remove some birth based quotas by 2047 100 years of independence we'll get rem- uh, rid of all quotas and there will be no positive discrimination because we've had 100 years of a leg up so so long as we can have that kind of even even the caveat there is i would say even even within affirmative action that too should be need based so for example uh, you know when the caste quotas came into the premier institutions of india the institutions of higher learning in india the iits and the iims uh, you know in the coming years and decades probably the grandchildren of the first uh, beneficiaries of the caste quotas uh will be that of that generation will be uh, av- uh able to avail of the quotas so let's say somebody's grandparent had gone to an iim should they be allowed to avail of the quota again in the same family uh i think these are debates that are important and again like very contentious so you know yeah. i don't want to be misunderstood here but i do think that yeah i do think that uh, such quotas should be targeted to those who need them even within the marginalized groups because obviously you know within the oppressed and marginalized group too there are elites fair enough i mean again we could discuss this for a long time but uh, i just wanted the uh, our listeners to understand that this is the point that the authors are doing right our authors yeah. are uh now let's ask uh, uh 
to investors if uh, profit is a bad word and how did profit become a bad word so i'll i'll go for that i'll say basically so the chapter 4 out of five chapters the name of the chapter 4 is profit is not a dirty word which is basically a response to uh, pandit jawaharlal nehru the first prime minister of india who had told jrd tata um, a doyen of tata group uh, in a personal meeting that jay don't talk to me about profit profit is a dirty word and the context was uh, mr tata had brought up i think the profitability of the public sector enterprises which were loss making at that time and therefore instead of giving capital to the government of india were kind of absorbing capital and and, and mr nehru was very kind of uh, shaken and not very keen to dis- discuss these ideas and i think uh, later on similar attitude in fact a more vigorous such attitude was taken by indira gandhi and we must remember that which was nehru's daughter that these two prime ministers together were prime ministers for about 35 years give or take so you know they kind of together what we ranji call nehruvian india they kind of defined the nehruvian india to some extent along with the, uh, the grandson of nehru rajiv gandhi uh, so the idea was you know it's a very socialistic almost quasi communist idea that we are a poor nation people should not make profits profits are obscene why can't we can why can't the government own the machinery and the factories and kind of redistribute all the good things that so it, was, it started off with a bunch of idealism and then it kind of as as it often happens transition into cronyism and corruption as the reality dawned because uh, economic stagnation yeah communism as an idea has failed across the world even socialism in which the government owns industries as opposed to say scandinavian socialism in which there is a very vibrant private sector but the government is basically doing redistribution through free school and free health which is a different form of socialism but a socialism or a communism or a quasi communism in which the government owns industries and banks Uh, which is what we tried for 30 40 years and also the government imposes very strenuous price controls so they, they there are many issues why we went there from price controls the dollar rupee rate was fixed uh and despite the fact that the rupee you had already kind of in real terms appreciated because we had higher inflation we could go into the macroeconomics but but the real reasons why we kind of stumbled into this and then it had its own kind of vested interest group of a few crony capitalists um bureaucrats and politicians who were just very comfortable with this nexus what was known as the license raj where you had to go to delhi to get a license to increase your cement uh, capacity to plant capacity from say 20000 tons to 40000 tons or whatever the right numbers are so you had to basically pay bribes for everything and we ended up in the worst of both worlds we could not even because we are a democracy and very proud of it so you could not control the unions the way communist china and soviet russia did Uh, so you had all the labor strikes the capital was not free it had to per force become corrupt to even survive good guys like aditya birla left the country uh, even mr mittal of mittal steel uh, made his real money outside of india right so that entire generation of entrepreneurs uh, either had to be co-opted by the system or they had to basically leave india um, and so that is the failure that's a mindset of profit is a dirty word which still exists in a diluted form today for example officially schools in india cannot be for profit right and what happens is you know you're running network capital why can't you run network capital university in two years from now well if you want to there are all these regulations you have to go through uh, officially making it non profit but if you're connected to a lot of politicians uh, you know just make the right politicians and bureaucrats trustees of the trust and it's all done and so why why do we have this hypocrisy towards profit when if utkarsh or rajiv or harsh are giving good services uh you should have the right regulation of course the right taxation 
So that I think that is a, basically the mindset that we kind of opposed in that chapter, Rajiv. Yeah. So uh, you know this hypocrisy about you know no one should make money. Money is a bad thing. Uh, you know one of my favorite parts in the book is actually when we delve into some of the aspects of pop culture and how movies actually reinforced uh, this idea that uh, making money is a bad thing and how that is changing now actually. Tell us. Go to, Fascinating. I loved. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you if you go back to the 70s and 80s and see some of the older sort of movies, uh, both in Hindi and other languages, or uh, in many languages in India, especially Hindi, which is the largest film industry here, uh, you find that the rich person in films is always you know some smuggler, some kind of exploitative businessman, uh, and you know typically even when business even when businessmen are shown, they are shown as grand dynasties who have existed for a long time so business is essentially not really for anybody you know it's not for the common person the common person is usually shown as some lawyer or some doctor somewhere or even a bureaucrat uh, and and uh, people just are you know what is what is the kind of job that the man on the street looks for he's just looking for a stable sort of service role uh, but but now if you fast forward like 40 years uh, you it is common to see sort of key characters in uh, movies now taking all kinds of roles right so there are there are people who are dj's there are there are people who are uh, uh, working in the corporate world entrepreneurs so that whole opportunity set has expanded so dramatically mm. and the reason yeah. the opportunity set was so small 30 40 years ago was that uh, profit making or money making was seen as something bad you know it's something that uh, it's not uh, even even today in certain regions and communities in india it is seen as you know who does that kind of stuff but clearly but clearly the money in money in, 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 in um you know i past are after you guys have to minutes because i've listened you guys yeah sure we can do some questions yeah okay um i'm just going to connect that we've got with that uh, i wanted to ask um So, Utkarsh, your Utkarsh, your voice is breaking. Okay. Um, better now. Uh, uh, combine the questions that I've got from listeners with some of the questions that I anyway wanted to have. So I'm assuming you guys have 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, we can do 15 minutes. Sure. Okay. So, guys, uh, quickly tell me that uh, profit doesn't seem to be a dirty word. There's a movie coming out on Flipkart. Attitudes are changing about money. All of the, these things have happened. That is uh, that is really well explained in the book. Um, but there are perplexing challenges that still exist. For example, the one that Harsh talked about: why uh, you know education institutions need to be you know a certain way. So still, there's still a little bit of a hangover of something, which is you know. uh stopping india from fast forwarding into the future um when you look at the higher education space you make a a, a a very interesting example of what we on network capital like to call the passion economy where people will sort of mainstream like little blogger in uttar uttar pradesh will you know create a different kind of a career so how should india look at higher education with the changing needs of the market with covid that has happened um you know all of us have studied in the best of places abroad what might india's future look like it is not clearly a couple of institutions right i don't think two institutions or five institutions can change uh, there needs to be a mainstreaming which allows people to build their careers of choice 
what's your advice to people thinking or tinkering in this space so i would say uh, firstly the error india made the policy error india made uh, 50 or 60 or actually even 70 years ago was that uh, the government that time uh, with prime minister nehru they sort of focused on professional education and higher education rather than primary schooling so instead of spending money and scarce resources at that time india was you know building the temples of modern india as as nehru called them the iits uh so i believe that was a policy mistake uh india should have prioritized primary schooling even today the emphasis of government intervention has to be in the area of primary schooling in the in the sort of getting getting all children into schools and so on uh and and when it comes to higher education actually frankly what the government needs to do is step away uh you know there's a need for deregulation there is a need for uh kind of uh, bringing in uh, more competition into the area allowing people to start universities more e- easily today for example one of the barriers to having a state level university is the assembly of the state has to pass an act so for every private university that is operating in a state there is an act that has to be passed wow. so clear disincentive to yeah. you know, absolutely absolutely it's a clear barrier to entry uh so so that means you know only only the billionaires and the very 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 uh, very kind of politically connected individuals can able to pull that right uh, i mean you and i people like you and i can't say that we can pass an act in parliament and uh, provide for that uh, uh, sorry pass an act in the assembly so i think that is actually the key thing for government to do and in fact we've not covered that in the book because the the uh, national education policy that came i think just a month or two ago yeah uh, uh, it came after the book was published uh, but i think that has made many course corrections in, in this area however education in india remains like obviously a concurrent kind of subject with both the states as well as the union government in delhi making policies so so i think it will eventually come down to states as to how far and how quickly they want to liberalize but but you absolutely right i mean with the way uh, you know the whole uh, value of a paper credential from a well known university i think that is under kind of serious threat from online learning platforms from you know the ability of individuals today to develop skills on their own through virtualization right. and uh, in fact in fact the nep the national education policy now recognizes that uh, uh, so so i think the what we need is government needs to sort of withdraw itself and kind of release the stranglehold it has in higher education and invest heavily in the primary area that to not through sort of more government schools but through uh instruments like vouchers as we have described in the book school vouchers yeah. i was just going to come to that one of the things that i enjoyed reading a lot in the book is uh, the talking talk about rct versus budget allocation so yeah. uh, you could, i would love for you to explain that but also sh- what i want my listeners to really take away is that policy should not be measured on how much money it is allocated uh-huh. but uh, rather how well it is delivered could you please explain uh, quickly very quickly what is an rct and why is it important to the future of india perhaps making a uh, taking education as an example so uh, so an rct we actually quote an rct rct is a randomized controlled trial so there was a randomized controlled trial study that happened which compared the efficiency on a taxpayer rupee basis for a private school versus a government run school 
in the state of Andhra Pradesh, and it found that similar to, in fact, slightly better outcomes were found in private schools for three times less the money. And this was done by a professor uh, in the University of California, San Diego, uh, partially funded by the Azim Premji Foundation. And our cities uh, have many drawbacks, but in some ways are the gold standard of uh, teasing out causation from correlation. Hmm. Uh, so based on that and other evidence, we say that it's better that, you know, as Rajiv was mentioning, invest money or as Utkarsh himself said, you know, how do you kind of separate outcomes from outlays? You know, you are outlays of budget expenditure. Outcome is the actual teaching and learning. Right. So it's not always to, not enough to metronomically increase by X percentage a school budget every year or have X, Y percentage of the GDP. But and the transfer and the translation from outcome, sorry, outlay to outcome is through incentives. What I mean by that is often private schools have lower teacher salaries, but better performance. Uh, why? Because teachers are afraid of being fired in private schools and they're greedy about getting bonuses and incentives. Whereas in a government school, once you get the unionized teacher job, you are a government school teacher for life. So you get it paid. Yeah. You make an example of how you make. Paid, get paid much more like a budget private school in a village or a slum would pay you like ten, twelve thousand dollars. Uh, sorry, twelve thousand rupees per month. Uh, whereas a government school teacher might get forty, fifty thousand rupees a month. Hmm. And I'm not saying it's somehow fair that the private school teacher is getting paid 10, 12,000 rupees a month. I'm not saying it's fair, but that's a market clearing rate. That's where the market is clearing at. You know, they might be doing some private school tuitions on the side. You keep coming back to let the market, market pays. Yeah. Let the market. You know, the point is we are a poor country. And one of the problems that we, people often say, we are still a $2,000 per capita income country. Uh, for a 1.3, 1.4 billion population, therefore slightly less than $3 trillion GDP. America's GDP for the viewers is $65,000 per capita income just before COVID hit. We are, even if you're just for purchasing power parity, we are eight to nine times poorer. We cannot have a Scandinavian welfare state on a sub-Saharan Africa income level, right? It just, it's good to have good intentions, good to display good intentions. But at some point, if your entire framework is more for consumption of your literary elites or your political elites in Delhi and South Bombay, as opposed to what it has to do with the reality of the ground, which is still messy, which is still inspiring in many places and ugly in many places, you are going to ultimately fail. And to quickly answer your question of higher education, uh, you know, one thing the government needs to do is much more kind of facilitate and use and exploit technology, especially after COVID, AR, VR, and all of that is there. But one thing the government should do is facilitate standardization of an exam. For example, what I mean by that is, you know, let the private universities be absolutely experimental in their pedagogy. But you can have a you can have a common BA, BCom, national exit exam. And what that does is, I can run a university, Utkarsh can run a university, Rajiv can run a university. But our students will clear along with our internal exams one BA final exam or one BCom exam, and that is excellent for signaling value. That is a standardized standardization of signaling value. So, you know, your education is for two reasons, for the intrinsic learning and for, for signaling to employers. You know, labor economics talks a lot about the signaling value of education, especially higher education. So the government, like Japan's METI did on measurement and standardization, the government can have more and more common exit exams. And the government is already thinking of that. And, you know, if you have an exit exam at year two, you can say it's an associate degree instead of a bachelor degree. Hmm. Or year one, you can call it a diploma. So there are, you can basically modularize education and leave the actual teaching to technology and private sector, including foreign sector. Mm -hmm. But so long as you clear this exam, you kind of 
we, I can compare different students from different places as an employer, for example. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, just coming towards the close, we have a couple of more questions. Somebody asks, uh, what's in your view the role of the state? Reading the book made me realize that you are largely advocating for a light touch model, but occasionally it seems like you're arguing for a mixed model. And sometimes it feels like you're arguing for a heavy handed model. So which is it? Like if as an average reader, what should I think? So, uh, you know, I, swear, I think I would simply say by this that Rajiv and I in chapter five, which is the last chapter we call decolonizing the Indian state, we say we want a light touch Indian state, but with extremely good governance capacity. So the few areas where the government needs to be, it should be extremely competent, maybe even hire more people, for example, policing, judiciary, basic what? regulation. Yeah, they need to do they need to do the, that job much better, for example, get out of public sector enterprises. On the other hand, on the other hand, there is one area where we say we we don't fully go with the free market. Just that's kind of we say there should be some trade and industrial policy to facilitate making India manufacturing. So there's the last part of chapter four is called Atmanirbhar Bharat India, which kind of uses uh, the current prime minister's slogan of self-reliance to translate that into English, uh, where we say that you need some moderate protectionism time bound along with full internal free markets, infrastructure, education financial free markets, so on and so forth, so that you, while the world is decoupling partially from China, especially after this pandemic, you need uh, both sticks and carrots. Uh, so I, I, that's maybe one of the exceptions the reader is referring to, but we want a limited government, but a very strong government where it is present. We don't want uh, an anarchy. Uh, Rajivan often say that if you want to go to a place with no government and you think it's a paradise, please go to Somalia, right? Mm -hmm. So, so libertarianism or even moderate libertarianism does not mean no government. We absolutely need good governance. Got it. So last question. Um, as, as a young Indian trying to find his or her space in the world today, um, how might I wear my Indian identity? Should it, is it a matter of pride? Is it a matter of fact? And is it a matter of one day we will arrive? Uh, Harsh, you want to? You're on mute. Okay, I'll go. I'll go first. Um, so uh, I think we should definitely see it as a matter of all three. It's a matter of fact. It's a matter of pride. It's also a matter of we'll arrive. It's a matter of fact because we have an Indian passport. We are born here. Whatever we are citizens. I think it's a matter of pride because from South Korea to Israel, we are the only functioning democracy in all of uh, otherwise East Asia and Middle East. And we have been for a long time, except for two years in the 1970s. Um, so I think that such a large country to be politically free, even while there have been other failures and accomplishments, is something to be proud of. You know, I, I meet people from communist China when I was outside of India as students or colleagues. And even in closed rooms, they would be afraid of talking about Tiananmen Square. Um, so there is a, a kind of political fear that we as Indians are simply not used to. And, where, and the third point, which your reader kind of very widely, kind of wisely divided into fact, right, and we will arrive. Yes, I think Rajiv and I actually, the, the summary kind of half chapter towards the end is called India's Moment. And we, I've written separately that I think India's GDP will be 12 trillion dollars by 2030-31. Rajiv is also extremely bullish on the Indian experiment. And actually, as part of writing the book, 
we we actually dealt into many micro reforms that we ourselves despite being finance political economic junkies had not even noticed even us collectively uh, so there are a lot there's a lot of tinkering and i think finally india is getting the model right we are right now in a pandemic and we were in a strong dollar phase last few years so the growth has not shown up but i think i'm very bullish for the next few years for exogenous reasons of technology and demographics but endogenous reasons of policy reform as well rajiv no yeah i mean i would just say in closing you know uh, like lot of uh, people tend to think that uh, india uh, is a nation of unfulfilled greatness so to say uh, and this is this has been a common sort of uh, disappointment i would say many citizens have it many other indophile sort of outside observers have it that why isn't india able to really rise in that sense i think we have to connect it back to certain inputs that are necessary from a government to enable that rise and it is our case as we have made in the book that those ingredients are coming now uh, they have been coming over the last 6 years and uh, we continue to feel optimistic that uh, the kind of policy changes that are being implemented will shift india to a high growth rate uh where i think in the next 15 to 20 years there will be a prosperous india which frankly many people cannot imagine today also we can, we simply cannot imagine that india will become uh, you know insanely rich in some ways uh, uh going into the middle part of the century uh so so i mean insanely rich means relative to you know the last 20 years uh not on a absolute basis but uh, relative to where we were so so i do feel very optimistic that uh, whoever asked this question you know good reasons that you can be and you will be all of the all of those three things so the person who asked this question actually heads uh, our new york uh, network capital new york chapter so you know the okay. biggest demand for your book or the book talks have come from our uh, like uh, south asian folks living abroad i mean just statistically telling you that those are the people who sort of rsvp'd a lot those are the people who uh, so clearly i mean there is demand for people to learn more about the idea of india even though they're not in india in fact more when they're not in india so we'll perhaps so do it actually makes complete sense right because as the case that we make in the book is that india that is bharat is a civilization and there are many uh, you know what the government of india calls Prava- pravasi bharatiyas hmm or you know what in english we say they are uh, non resident indians or even overseas uh, indians of overseas origin or other persons of indian origin overseas yeah so so, so the indian civilization extends beyond the landmass of india it most certainly does thank you so much arshin rajiv uh, congratulations on uh, writing uh, this book that clearly makes a case uh, for a marketplace of ideas that both of you have both engaged in and encouraged other to do so to uh, follow up soon with network capital new york or london clearly there's a big demand but uh, it was such a joy to see our dots connect thank you so much see you very soon thank you sir bye bye thank you karsh bye bye